Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1196. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 3. This is being recorded on August 9th of the year 2021. Let me begin by reminding you of three important links, one of which will enable you to subscribe to the comments being made by intelligent listeners. Uh, above all, our contributing editor, Terra Fractal, spelled capital P-T-E-R-R-A-F-R-A-C-T-Y-L. There is way too much going on for me to possibly deal with it in the context of a one-hour weekly program or sometimes more than weekly. So please do subscribe to the comments. Another link will enable those of you who can best consume the program as a podcast to subscribe to the podcasts of For the Record that are being made by Sister Station WFMU. And yet another link will enable you to get the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my roughly 42 years on uh, that flash drive. Uh, it is... Uh, a remarkable aggregate of information and includes a mini library of old anti-fascist books that were available for download for free on the uh, spitfirelist.com website. And I get no money whatsoever from the 32-gigabyte flash drive. Now, this uh, series, this program is going to... Uh, to an extent, either uh, this and or the next program are going to feature uh, a recap of a fair amount of material that I had in the first two programs. Uh, the I'm doing a long series about the history of China because that history really is something that I think has to be understood in order to understand what is going on today. And uh, let me say right off the bat that I am scared bleepless. I mean, the fresh fertilizer has, is <laughs> being scared out of me. I think we are headed for a third world war, and uh, that is not going to be good. The subject that I will be going into. Again, I'm going to be talking about Chinese history in the context of what is going on today. Uh, the current government of China really is a hybrid form of government, although obviously there is a large communist party that uh, is in control of the political process. As a commentator noted, uh, some years back, China basically pivoted from uh, communism to capitalism while keeping the p chassis of their political system intact. A better term for contemporary China would be state capitalism. I would note that that country has more billionaires than any other country on earth except for the U.S. Uh, so obviously uh, there is something else going on other than the uh, uh, pictures of Mao Zedong, etc. Uh, recently there was the centenary anniversary in China of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in Shanghai in, 20, in, in 1921. And uh, 
that founding of the Communist Party uh, was followed not too long afterward by the massacre of uh, most of the uh, Chinese communists in Shanghai by the Green Gang of Tu Yuasheng, about whom we'll say more later, and the Kuomintang of Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, as a kid growing up, and by and I guess in the interests of full discovery, I'm an old geezer. Uh, I'm about to turn 72. And I grew up not only uh, learning about World War II, uh, but learning about, or at least being propagandized about Chiang Kai-shek as, you know, the uh, noble uh, warrior uh, of the West against Chinese communism. Uh, that is the image that was very carefully propagated in the U.S. and uh, it <laughs> contrasts very sharply with the reality of Chiang Kai-shek. Not only was Chiang Kai-shek and his but not only was he a doctrinaire fascist, and we will talk about his blue shirts movement and uh, the fascist dogma that drove his regime, but he also uh, Chiang Kai-shek. And his Kuomintang was a front for the most powerful interest in China at that time, which was the narcotics smuggling cartel headed up by Tu Yuasheng, or sometimes Du Yuasheng, uh, also known as Big Eared Tu, because he had enormous ears. He was the head of the Green Gang, and that was the thing. He was the most powerful man in China. He coalesced all of the various opium smuggling interests in China into a giant cartel and used that to not only monopolize the opium trade, but to uh, expand his power into all other aspects of Chinese society, its business community, its financial community, and Chiang Kai-shek, the generalissimo, of China was essentially a front man for the Green Gang of Tu Yuasheng. Uh, tu Yuasheng was the real power behind the throne. He was so powerful that at one point, uh, when Chiang Kai-shek was uh, displeasing to, he had Madame Chiang Kai-shek kidnapped. Uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, by the way, was born Mei Ling Sung, and uh, she, along with T.V. Sung and uh, her sister Ailing Sung, were three of the most powerful people in China. Uh, they were the daughters uh, and sons, respectively, of Charlie Sung, who was a Chinese who was raised, uh, spent a lot of his time, not raised, but spent a lot of his time in the U.S. and was part of the missionary milieu in the U.S., which had much to do with or the orientation of the U.S. toward China. Most of that was very destructive, uh, and I think it would not be unfair to describe the historical position of the U.S. toward China as the missionary position, pun intended. Uh, the subject of this program is fascism. I describe myself as an anti-fascist, which, you know, people have no idea, you know, uh, please don't ever confuse me with, quote, Antifa, unquote. Uh, <laughs> they, they arose with Donald Trump, and uh, well, they bear, uh, in my opinion, an admixture of the three categories of opponents 
one encounters in this line of work. The three A's, agents, assets, and a-holes. And there's probably a lot of all of those in uh, Antifa. But uh, you cannot discuss Chiang Kai-shek without discussing fascism because his government was fascist. It was a narco-fascist government. The real power was, again, Tu Yuexing and the Green Gang of, of uh, Shanghai, really all of China. And in addition to his avowed Christianity, which along with the conversion of Tu Yuexing to Christianity, uh, won over people like Henry Luce, the publishing giant in the U.S., himself, by the way, the son of, China, of American missionaries in China, and someone whose position toward China was essentially that of the missionary position. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the Green Gang had as an ideological tenet above all else anti-communism, and that endeared them to Henry Luce, to the U.S. Uh, those who say that the United States does not have a state religion are simply put wrong. The U.S. does have a national religion, and that national religion is anti-communism. And one of the things that uh, I find grotesquely amusing is that that is what is one of the things which superficially anyway is driving the new Cold War between the U.S. and China. Uh, the introduction uh, in the first two programs to the subject I think was somewhat sprawling and lacking in focus. This is not an easy subject to approach. And uh, again, I think there's going to be a third world war, and I think we are all basically screwed, <laughs> because that is certainly going to do the job. I think that one of the, I think the real fear of China is that China was a colonial territory. It was decimated and victimized by the colonial powers of Europe and the U.S. and then later China or Japan as well. And now what was a former colonial punching bag is becoming a world power. China uh, has a fifth of the world's population, and uh, they are educating their people, and they are growing very quickly, making enormous progress, as I have noted. In 1981, 88% of the Chinese population lived at or below the poverty level. By 2015, according to the World Bank and even the analysis division of the CIA, that was down to 0.7% uh, in the year 2002, only 4% of the Chinese population were middle class. That was up to 31%, almost an eightfold increase by 2018, an almost eightfold increase in 16 years. They have um, exponentially expanded the number of college graduates. Again, it is a communist country mostly in name only. It's kind of a hybrid system. State Capitalism would be a better way of characterizing China. They obviously have some very important and large uh, private enterprise, and in fact, um, a significant private enterprise. Much of Chinese big tech is under fire uh, in the West. I'm afraid they're likely to come under fire uh, even beyond that. Uh, 
I think the, as I have noted in many programs, including most recently the 12-part Oswald Institute of Virology series, uh, the coronavirus, in my uh, considered opinion, did indeed originate in a laboratory. That laboratory was not Chinese, and it didn't escape. It is a U.S. biological warfare weapon. Uh, and, and the advent of the pandemic and the Cold War against the new Cold War against China, I don't think could be exaggerated in uh, the importance in their dimensions. Uh, I think the it, it is a matter of public record that the coronavirus is uh, in the U.S. in particular something of a eugenic virus. It is victimizing the poorest and the least advantaged more than others. It is uh, victimizing people of color more than others. It is leading to a concentration of wealth, and that basic principle could be viewed uh, or expanded really into the rest of the world. There has been a lot of discussion about the devastating effects of the pandemic on the developing world. It is handicapping them and may permanently handicap the developing world. Uh, There has been a lot of discussion about the vaccine distribution and how that, too, is leading to a gap between the, a growing gap between the developing world and the industrialized world. In my opinion, that is absolutely Conscious, it is willful, and the enormity of the pandemic. I think it, it, the coronavirus could be called not only the wealth concentration virus; it is in many ways the neo-colonial virus because I think it is reinforcing a not only neo-colonial but frankly racist worldview that is in absolutely is intentional in the world as a whole. And the thing that I think scares the fresh fertilizer out of the industrialized world is that you have a country, China, with a fifth of the world's population. It was a punching bag for the colonial powers of the world, and now it is on the verge. Well, it is becoming a world power. I would not call it a superpower yet, but it is becoming one. And that, in my opinion, is unacceptable to the uh, former colonial powers, to the industrialized world, or the white world, if you uh, will. Uh, again, uh, China is a country that was a punching bag for the colonial powers of uh, Europe and the U.S., also for Japan, and now they are a rapidly developing power themselves. In 2000, only 2% of the Chinese population was online. That was up to 29% by 2009. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times which has had scandalous coverage in China, openly weaponized, in my opinion. And they were railing about how the uh, pandemic, the coronavirus, had slowed down uh, attempts at lifting Chinese out of extreme poverty, which was described as an income of 92 cents uh, a day or was it 92? I think 92 cents a day or less, which obviously is extreme poverty. It noted that whereas there were 56 million Chinese in that category five years ago, that was down to 5 million at the present time. That's something like a 92% reduction in five years. That is enormous progress. China has a long way to go. 
I do not think that I'm looking at China through uh, rose-colored glasses. I'm a realist, and frankly, I have a low opinion of human nature. Uh, China has a fifth of the world's population. Is there injustice there? Of course. This is real life. Is there corruption there? Of course. This is real life. To, to pretend that there is no injustice or very little injustice or very little corruption in a fifth of the world's population is just plain stupid. Um, I think, however, that China, China is certainly making enormous progress. That progress is unacceptable to the uh, industrial nations, and I don't think that they are going to accept it. And among the reasons that they will not accept it is that the Chinese are not white. And again, a former, former colonial punching bag is now becoming a major power. And the only way that they are going to be rolled back is through one form of warfare or another. And uh, I think the pandemic could be viewed as the neo-colonial virus, the wealth concentration virus, the eugenic virus. It also in many ways could be considered the uh, remember the main virus or the Reichstag fire virus. Uh, we are now being told, well, you know, the U.S. is increasingly, most Americans now think that the virus came from a lab leak, which is, as I pointed out, that is the deep state in action. And I think that that is very likely to lead uh, American sentiment down the road toward favoring a war with China. Certainly, it, it is, uh, I think, a very dangerous attitude. Uh, so I, I think in, in a sense, sort of restarting uh, this series, uh, I hope to bring it to a clearer focus. Again, the, this program and the next will have some repetition in terms of program material. Uh, we are going to be getting into a very, very important book that I uh, have already excerpted. Again, that book is called The Soon Dynasty, S-O-O-N-G, by Sterling Seagrave, published in hardcover by Harper and Rowe. We will also be using uh, Sterling and Peggy Seagrave's seminal Gold Warriors, as I indicated. Uh, a couple of articles that I think will not only express uh, my sense of dismay and outrage at the hypocrisy that this country and the West in general is showing toward China, uh, it also will express um, the alarm that I feel at the uh, uh, growing military posture vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Uh, the Trump administration withdrew the U.S. from the intermediate-range missile treaty in order to build up missiles to be used against China. And uh, I think the Chinese strategic posture vis-a-vis -vis, um, some unoccupied islands in the uh, South China Sea and in other uh, waters, some of which are being militarized, needs to be seen in the context not only of Chinese history, and we will recap uh, briefly the Opium Wars, uh, it also needs to be understood in terms of, uh, well, it needs to be understood in terms of contemporary Chinese strategic 
orientation. Historically, China has been ravaged by superior naval forces. Uh, the term gunboat diplomacy, which I will wager most listeners are familiar with, was coined during the Opium Wars when in order to correct a huge balance of payments deficit that the uh, the UK uh, and also Europe to an extent had toward China, uh, the British East India Company began uh, growing enormous amounts of opium and selling it to Chinese gangsters for importation or import into China when the Manchu uh, dynasty or the King KQING government cracked down on that, uh, the British sent in their non their matchless naval forces and basically uh, humiliated China in a uh, couple of wars called the Opium Wars. One of the outgrowths of that was to give Hong Kong and other territories to the UK. So when we see the destabilization effort, which I have documented in a number of programs, including for the record 1089 to 1091 in Hong Kong, that too has a profound historical resonance in China. And when we see uh, the U.S. sending uh, naval forces in combination with Japan and Australia and India, and now uh, in a grotesque historical parody, so to speak, uh, or self-parody, we've got uh, the conservative government of Boris Every day is a bad hair day, Johnson, sending the uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier and support ships uh, sailing through the South China Sea in a, a display of force. Uh, that is, I guess one could say, a display of force that is a display of force historically. Uh, that is absolutely geared to make the Chinese see red, pun intended, and uh, it, it is... Uh, grotesque in its political and historical manifestation. And that is said from someone who uh, is something of an Anglophile. Uh, by, uh, by way of uh, disclosure, uh, my grandparents had some close friends who lived in London. And uh, during the Blitz uh, and during the Battle of Britain, they sent their children to live with my grandparents, uh, who and they went to school with my parents' high school so that they would not basically be killed by our German bombs during the Blitz. So I grew up with uh, a very strong... Uh, awareness of the British resistance to Hitler during World War II. It is not accidental at all that this uh, website is called Spitfire List and that the logo of the RAF, that target symbol that was on the Spitfire, their uh, interceptor aircraft of World War II, is the logo on the Spitfire website. So it is with a sense of deep mourning, in a sense that I, I, I see the, frankly, farcical and grotesque uh, actions of Boris Johnson and the UK. The UK now has a, a larger military budget than Russia. The US has four times the military budget of China, and it is uh, only 20% of the population, or actually less than that, um, roughly a fifth of the population in a much smaller territory. So having this great power rivalry, as the Pentagon likes to put it, uh, is 
grotesque in one level, and I think it is incredibly dangerous. Uh, by way of giving some perspective, and I think the articles that I'm about to read will do a better job of uh, giving my uh, point of entry and my sense of alarm uh, over what is going on, perhaps better than my rambling introduction here uh, could do. Uh, from German Foreign Policy, which feeds on the Spitfire List website, there is a link in the lower right-hand uh, corner of the website. From German Foreign Policy of August 3rd of 2021, there is an article called Illegally Occupied Islands. And what this talks about is the uh, German frigate Bayern, which is one of the many NATO uh, ships that is, uh, along with Japanese and Indian ships and uh, Australian ships and uh, South Korean naval forces, that are basically uh, displaying to China uh, a hostile marine position. That's a marine with a small M, although the U.S. Marines are now being uh, uh, reformed into uh, an anti-China force to uh, use missiles against China. Part of some of that intermediate-range missile development involves the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, this is an important article because it not only shows uh, a good perspective on the competing national claims for many of these islands in the South China Sea and uh, in adjacent waters. It also shows that uh, China is not the only country by any means that is laying claim to these islands and that they are not the only country by any means that is militarizing some of those islands. We are being told that, uh, well, my goodness, China is, using, is developing these islands and some of them have military bases on them, which is true. Uh, they, they are not alone. And what is so interesting here, and the point will be made at length in this German foreign policy article, is that one of the first ports of call for the German frigate Bayern, B-A-Y-E-R-N, is Diego Garcia. That is an island in the Indian Ocean that is the site of a major U.S. military base, and it is altogether illegal because Great Britain basically illegally and in violation of international law broke Diego Garcia off from the Chagos Archipelago, that's C-H-A-G-O-S, and uh, the island of Diego Garcia and others in that archipelago are not unmanned islands. They're not uh, uh, islands with no population, some of which are, uh, some of the islands in question when we hear about China, are below water part of the year. These are occupied islands and they, uh, their population was deported. And the, the UK occupation of Diego Garcia is completely illegal and in violation of national law, as is the U.S., the key U.S. military base on Diego Garcia as well. And yet we are being told that the U.S. and uh, Britain and Germany and Japan and India and Australia and South Korea are reinforcing a rules-based order. That is a bunch of fresh fertilizer. Uh, it's our rules and our order. And in fact, uh, the, quote, rules-based order uh, is a highly partisan 
ideologized view being propagated by the U.S. and and uh, other countries as well, including Germany. So uh, I think a very good perspective, a good point of entry, re-entry really into this discussion is this article from German Foreign Policy of August 3rd of 2021, Illegally Occupied Islands. And the subhead, during this East Asia tour, the German Navy frigate Bayern will make a port call at Diego Garcia. The island is the site of a U.S. military base and is, according to U.N. courts, illegally occupied by Great Britain. The article reads, and by the way, this is translated from the German, so some of the verbiage here may be awkward. The frigate, the frigate Bayern, which set sail for East Asia yesterday, this is August 3rd, will soon make a port call at Diego Garcia, an island under occupation in violation of international law and serving military purposes. It is the main island of the Chagos Archipelago, that's capital C-H-A-G-O-S, Archipelago in the middle of the Indian Ocean and a site of a strategically important U.S. military base. The Chagos Archipelago is an old British colonial possession that had once belonged to Mauritius. That is an island, M-A-U-R-I-T-I-U-S. It was detached in violation of international law during the decolonization of Mauritius in order to allow the United States to construct a military base. The population was deported to impoverished regions on Mauritius itself. In the meantime, several international court rulings have been handed down and a UN General Assembly resolution has been passed on this issue, all concluding that Mauritius has sovereignty over Diego Garcia and calling on the United Kingdom to hand back the illegally occupied Chagos Archipelago. To this day, London and Washington refuse to comply. This does not bother Berlin at all. The next section, advocates, quote, advocates of a rule-based order, unquote, belongs in quotes. Officially, Berlin justifies the frigate Bayern's deployment, uh, deployment to East Asia with its intention to promote the implementation of international law. This pertains particularly to conflicts over numerous islands and atolls in the South China Sea that are contested by the riparians and where China claims 28 of them and uses some militarily, according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. According to CSIS, the Philippines control another nine, Malaysia five, and Taiwan one island, whereas Vietnam has established around 50 outposts of various sorts. All four countries also have a military presence on some of the islands and atolls they are occupying. Parenthetically, but we only hear about China, none of the others. And that China, uh, Vietnam alone has 50 outposts as opposed to 28 by China. Continuing with the article. Of course, the German Minister of Defense, Annegret Klump-Karrenbauer, only refers to China when she stated yesterday that currently attempts are being made to, quote, enforce territorial claims 
in accordance with the principle of might makes right, unquote. Again, quoting, As advocates of a rule-based order, we are not indifferent when existing law is ignored and facts are created in violation of international law, unquote. German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas also claims that Germany is particularly committed to, quote, upholding international law, unquote, in the, quote, Indo-Pacific, unquote. The next section, A Colony with Slaves, uh, belong, uh, talks about some of the history. And, by the way, an international court did rule against China's claims of sovereignty over the South China Sea. Irrespective of the disputes in the South China Sea, Berlin's claims would formally be at least a bit more credible if, according to the German Defense Ministry, one of the frigate Bayern's first ports of call were not Diego Garcia, the largest of the Chagos Islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean. The Chagos Islands are part of the old European colonial possessions. France had seized them in 1783 and immediately imported slaves from Madagascar and Mozambique to toil on coconut plantations. In 1814, Great Britain took over the archipelago. Until 1965, it had been under the administration of the British island colony of Mauritius, again M-A-U-R-I-T-I-U-S, located east of Madagascar when London, in violation of international law, amputated the Chagos Islands from Mauritius, naming them the British Indian Ocean Territory, or BIOT. Mauritius, at the time, was preparing for its decolonization achieved in 1968. The reason for the amputation, the United States planned the construction of a naval and air base on Diego Garcia. This is why the archipelago was not granted its independence along with Mauritius. At the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s, the entire population, about 2,000 people, were deported to impoverished regions on Mauritius and the Seychelles Islands. And the next is called Wars of Aggression and Interrogations Under Torture. It talks about some of the history of American military uses of Diego Garcia. The U.S. has used its Diego Garcia military base, not least of all for the purpose of launching air air strikes in numerous wars, including blatant wars of aggression in violation of international law, as well as for the 2003 attack on Iraq. Even now, the base is of the utmost strategic importance to the U.S. armed forces. Experts qualify it as, quote, the key U.S. strategic outpost in the Indian Ocean, unquote. It also proved useful for the CIA's abductions of suspects to torture chambers in the aftermath of September 11, 2001. Lawrence Wilkerson, former Secretary of State Colin Powell's Chief of Staff from 2002 to 2005, confirmed in early 2015 that Diego Garcia had served the CIA as a, quote, transit site, unquote. The CIA had brought suspects to the base, quote, when perhaps other places were full or other places were deemed too dangerous or insecure or unavailable at the moment, unquote. In such cases, the abductor were flown out to Diego Garcia and, quote, 
housed, let us say, and interrogated from time to time, unquote. The procedures used at the time have still not been fully elucidated. Those responsible for the abductions and crimes of torture have never been punished. I would note that very quickly and in passing, torture is not simply from an intelligence collection standpoint. It is not a good means of gathering intelligence because when someone is being tortured, they will very often tell you what they think you want to hear just to stop the pain. It is not a good way to obtain information. Even the mad dog James Mattis, uh, the former Marine Corps general who was one of Trump's secretaries of defense, said uh, a six-pack of beer and a pack of cigarettes will do a better job than torture. Continuing, the UN's verdict is the next section. Nevertheless, British colonial rule over Chagos, which lays the foundation for the U.S. military base on Diego Garcia, has been under sharp international attack for years. In November of 2000, the former inhabitants initially succeeded in having their deportation officially ruled an injustice by the British High Court. They are still fighting for their right of return. On February 25th of 2019, Mauritius won its suit before the International Court of Justice, or ICJ, in The Hague against the illegal amputation of the Chagos Islands in 1965. The ICJ 13-1 ruling stipulates that Great Britain must return the archipelago to Mauritius. U.S. Justice Joan E. Donahue was the sole dissenting vote in the ruling. On May 22, 2019, the U.N. General Assembly, in the vote of 116 in favor and six opposed, called on the United Kingdom to comply with the ICJ's verdict and return the islands within six months. Both London and Washington are ignoring the UN vote as well as the ICJ, the International Criminal Court, uh, International Court of Justice verdict. Finally, on January 28, 2021, the UN International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea in Hamburg concurred with the ICJ's ruling and stated that sovereignty over the Chagos Islands remains unadulterated with Mauritius. Therefore, Great Britain and the USA are illegally occupying Diego Garcia for military purposes. According to the next section is Berlin's morality. According to Germany's Ministry of Defense, the frigate Bayern, which set sail yesterday from the port of Wilhelmshaven, will first come to the Mediterranean Sea, where it will participate in NATO's Sea Guardian operation, continue through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, and it will then join the EU's Operation Atlanta at as A-T-A-L-A-N-T-A, at the Horn of Africa. Subsequently, it plans to make a call at Pakistan's port city of Karachi before continuing across the Indian Ocean to pay a call at Diego Garcia. In reference to Diego Garcia, Berlin raises no criticism to, quote, territorial claims in accordance with the principle of might makes right, 
quoting uh, Ms. Karrenbauer, nor to a constant refusal to, quote, uphold international law, unquote, according to Heiko Maas. I think the article speaks very well for itself and underscores the blatant hypocrisy of the U.S. and also the U.K. Uh, these are the China and uh, their uh, occupation of unoccupied islands in the South China Sea and the militarization of same. There are 28 compares with 50 uh, from uh, for Vietnam and uh, a great many others as well. I will also note we will talk uh, way well well down the, the line in this series about uh, the history of the nation of Taiwan on the island of Formosa. A book review in that very same German foreign policy blog of, Ju- of uh, July 21st of 2021, I think also expresses the sense of alarm that I feel uh, in connection with what is going on vis-a-vis the new Cold War against China. The title of the book review is called Ami Go Home. That is an ungracious title. It means basically American go home. Or it is a German iteration of the old Yankee go home. And uh, the... Uh, subhead here is Stefan, S-T-E-F-A-N, Baron, B-A-R-O-N, former head editor of the German weekly Wirtschaftswoche, and analyzes the struggle for hegemony between the USA and China. Ami go home? That is not the sort of title one would expect to see on a book by an author like Stefan Baron. Baron, an economics graduate who in the course of his professional career has worked as financial correspondent for Der Spiegel, editor-in-chief of the Wirtschaftswoche, and most recently as the director of global communication for the Deutsche Bank, certainly would not want his book to be considered anti-American. In his book, the publicist, who for years had been a member of the Board of Trustees of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies, and who still enjoys good relations with the U.S., focuses his attention on the major shift in the global balance of power shaping our present, with China's rise and the USA seeking to hold the People's Republic of China down to preserve its global dominance. The consequences are a dangerous escalation of the conflict which could lead to a third world war which, as Baron notes, must be urgently prevented. This concern leads him to harshly criticize the U.S.'s current situation and to suggest ways of preventing the escalation of the trans-Pacific power struggle. One more time. The consequences of this global power struggle are a dangerous escalation of the conflict which could lead to a third world war which, as Baron notes, must urgently be prevented. This concern leads him to harshly criticize the U.S.'s current situation and to suggest ways of preventing the escalation of the trans-Pacific power struggle. In the sober appraisal, Barron describes the seemingly relentless, quote, shift of the global focal point of power toward Asia, unquote, with its driving factor being the ascendance of China, 
It's a very important and prescient analysis of the history of China as an economic entity uh, vis-à-vis the colonial powers of Europe and the U.S. Continuing, at the beginning of the 19th century, the Middle Kingdom, China, which had one-third of the world's population, was still generating a third of the world's economic output. Therefore, it was the world's greatest economic power as it had already been for many centuries. China's resurgence, following the devastation brought on particularly by the Western colonial powers, was possible, Baron explains, not least because, quote, the political economic system of the People's Republic is precisely that what no one expects in the West, where agitational reporting usually only confirms resentful cliches about China. One more time. Again, this was translated from the German, so it is the verbiage is in places quite awkward. China's resurgence, following the devastation brought on particularly by the Western colonial powers, was possible, Baron explains, not least because, quote, the political economic system of the People's Republic is precisely what no one expects in the West, where agitational reporting usually only confirms resentful cliches about China. It is, quote, highly flexible, adventurous, and adaptable, unquote. Baron quotes Sebastian Heilman, H-E-I-L-M-A-N-N, and Elizabeth Perry, both experts on China, saying politics is explicitly understood as a, quote, process of constant transformations and conflict management with trial runs and ad hoc adaptations. The Chinese system is a far cry from being a rigid, inflexible authoritarianism. Amen. By the way, in one of the articles we read... Um, in connection with the uh, U.S. destabilization effort, well, really Western uh, destabilization effort against Hong Kong, it described China as a nation of engineers and as uh, sort of an ongoing empirical experiment. Uh, basically, they're trying many things out. I think the analysis presented here, though, is spot on and really needs to be understood and emphasized. So one more time. Baron explains, quote, the political economic system of the People's Republic is precisely what no one expects in the West, where agitational reporting usually only confirms resentful cliches about China. It is, quote, highly flexible, adventurous, and adaptable, unquote. Baron quotes Sebastian Heilman and Elizabeth Perry, both experts on China, saying politics is explicitly understood there as, quote, a process of constant transformations and conflict management with trial runs and ad hoc adaptations, unquote. The Chinese system is a far cry from being a rigid, inflexible authoritarianism. On the other hand, one notices his deep disappointment in his descriptions of the current situation in the United States. Quote, The land of freedom, equal opportunity, and democracy has degenerated into an oligarchy, even a plutocracy, unquote, writes Barron. 
again quoting, The rule of law shows deep cracks. Economic productivity and perspectives for the future are dwindling. The middle class is melting away. Social inequality and racism are rampant. Barron depicts the foreign policy of the USA at home increasingly decaying, has been indulging in since the end of the Cold War. An extremely aggressive approach toward Russia, grueling wars such as in Iraq, in addition to, quote, regime change operations, unquote, and unscrupulous extraterritorial sanctions. And he notes something here that uh, I also um, I agree with. That is the burgeoning power, not only of the military-industrial conflict, but of the U.S. intelligence services as well. Quote, The military-industrial complex and U.S. intelligence services have seized an enormous amount of power, unquote, notes the publicist, and warns that only external aggression can hold the country together. Quote, the conviction that America must be at the top in the world, unquote, is at the moment, quote, almost the only thing that the deeply antagonistic Democrats and Republicans can still agree on, unquote. Barron speaks of imperial arrogance, unquote. And he has no illusions about how dangerous the situation has become, quote, to defend to defend its lost hegemonic position. The United States, quote, is not primarily seeking to regain its competitiveness, unquote, Baron observes, but rather it is striving, quote, by any means and on all fronts to prevent or at least restrain China's progress, unquote. At the moment, he was using a trade and a technology war, however, predicts the publicist, although these will, quote, seriously slow down Peking's technological catching-up process, it cannot stop it, unquote. Ultimately, quote, the threat of a third world war, unquote, looms large. Barron recalls that in his graduation speech to the cadets of the U.S. West Point Military Academy in 2019, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence had openly, quote, admitted the prospect that they will, quote, one day stand on the battlefield. In other words, we'll have to go to war, unquote. The USA is not only the sole country in the world that has already and without necessity used nuclear weapons, unquote, but also the one that, unlike China, has never renounced on their first use, unquote. And, uh, I, again, I, I am afraid of, of the Third World War that he talks about it. Even if China doesn't get off a single nuke, the devastation, it will not only collapse the global economy, but that you, you think the air is bad now because of all the wildfires. <laughs> there's a, there's a Third World War, man, there's gonna be some really bad air. Again, I think, uh, Stefan Barron makes a lot of good points. He then goes on to, in, in my opinion, make something of a fool of himself. He talks about how the EU itself is devoid of hegemonic ambitions, uh, as uh, the authors here note. The latter may be doubted with good reason, along with his conviction that the EU had been forced by the USA into the conflict with Russia. 
It was precisely the EU's expansion of power, driven by old German ambitions to gain influence in the East, that had caused the dire escalation of the conflict with Russia in 2014. Well, I agree with that completely. I would say the EU itself is the realization, particularly the IMU, of uh, really a couple hundred years of German pan-European imperialism. Uh, I think the point that he makes here is a very good one, and I think in particular uh, the previous article noting the profound hypocrisy in both America's and Britain's attitude toward Diego Garcia and Rodrigo's archipelago uh, really can best be understood in terms of China's history. In a past program and in the written description for this show, uh, I sum up some of the many outgrowths uh, of uh, Western imperialism vis-a-vis China and the opium wars in particular. Uh, I'm going to do my best here to uh, quickly highlight some key aspects of the opium wars. We will begin this and begin uh, our deep dive into the Song Dynasty in our next program. From the various Wikipedia entries, uh, the economic imperative for the opium wars was the trade imbalance between China and Britain. In the 18th century, the demand for Chinese luxury goods, particularly silk, porcelain, and tea, created a trade imbalance between China and Britain. European silver flowed into China through the Canton system, which confined incoming foreign trade to the southern port of Canton. And then uh, Britain basically, uh, when China tried to interdict the opium trade, uh, Britain responded with a force of arms. To counter this imbalance, the British East India Company began to grow opium in Bengal and allowed private British merchants to sell opium to Chinese smugglers for illegal sale in China. The influx of narcotics reversed the Chinese trade surplus drained the economy of silver, and increased the number of opium addicts inside the country, outcomes that seriously worried Chinese officials. Basically, the the opium importation by the British East India Company was a weapon of war. It was narco-imperialism, to coin a term. Continuing, in 1839, the Daoguang Emperor, rejecting the proposals to legalize and tax opium, appointed Viceroy Lin Zhexu, Z-E-X-U, to go to Canton to halt the opium trade completely. Lin wrote an open letter to Queen Victoria, which she never saw, appealing to her moral responsibility to stop the opium trade. Lin then resorted to using force in the Western merchants' enclave. He confiscated all supplies and ordered a blockade of foreign ships on the Pearl River. Lin also confiscated and destroyed a significant quantity of European opium. The British government responded by dispatching a military force to China, and in the ensuing conflict, the Royal Navy used its naval and gunnery power to inflict a series of decisive defeats on the Chinese Empire, a tactic these are referred to as gunboat diplomacy. I'll wait for, uh, most members of the audience have heard that term. It comes from the Opium Wars. Continuing. In 1842, the Qing Dynasty was forced to sign the Treaty of Nanking, the first of what the Chinese later called the Unequal Treaties, which granted an indemnity and extraterritoriality to British subjects in China. 
in 1840, the, the 1843 Treaty of Nanking not only opened the way for further, or further opium trade, but ceded to Britain the territory of Hong Kong. By the way, it gave British citizens in China extraterritoriality that made them basically uh, exempt from Chinese law, which exacerbated the opium trade. Now, about the Second Opium War. Despite the new ports available for trade under the Treaty of Nanking, by 1854, Britain's imports from China had reached nine times their exports to the country. At the same time, British imperial finance finances came under further pressure from the expense of administering the burgeoning colonies of Hong Kong and Singapore in addition to India. Only the latter's opium could balance the deficit. Along with various complaints about the treatment of British merchants in Chinese ports and the King government's refusal to accept further foreign ambassadors, the relatively minor Arrow incident provided the pretext the British needed to once more resort to military force to ensure the opium kept flowing. Matters quickly escalated and led to the Second Opium War. We'll be um, summing up some of the things that Britain got from the Second Opium War. China was obliged to see the number one district of Kowloon to Britain expanding Hong Kong, which was granted to Britain because of the First Opium War. They were granted, uh, the Chinese granted freedom of religion, which went to an influx of Western mercenaries, U.S. in particular. More about that down the line. British ships were allowed to carry indentured Chinese to the Americas and legalization of the opium trade. That was an outgrowth of the Second War. Among the critics of this was former British Prime Minister William Ewart Gladstone. The opium trade incurred intense enmity from the later British Prime Minister William Ewart Gladstone. As a member of Parliament, Gladstone called it, quote, most infamous and atrocious, unquote, referring to the opium trade between China and British India in particular. Gladstone was fiercely against both of the opium wars, was ardently opposed to the British trade in opium to China, and denounced British violence against Chinese. Gladstone lambasted it as, quote, Palmerston's opium war, unquote, and said that he felt, quote, in dread of the judgments of God upon England for our national iniquity towards China in May of 1940. Gladstone criticized it as, quote, a war more unjust in its origin, a war more calculated in its progress to cover this country with permanent disgrace, unquote. And in our next program, we're going to talk about some of the outgrowths of the opium wars. It had a devastating effect on China. It basically made the opium a scourge in China as a result of the second uh, opium war. It became legal, and it was the dope trade, narcotics, the opium trade, that was the foundation for the base of power of the Green Gang. And the Green Gang was the dominant power in China, and Chiang Kai-shek was essentially a political front for the Green Gang. His Kuomintang was a political front for the Green Gang. More about that, however, in our next program. This concludes for the record program number 1196, The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 3. This is being recorded on August 9th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.